Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Four years on from Grenfell, we reflect on architecture's response. Protesters gather in Brick Lane to fight the Truman Brewery's redevelopment. Peter Barber, Samita Singer and others receive Queen's birthday honours. And GB News, television's latest rolling current affairs channel, blames the housing crisis for growing cultural divides. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I am an architectural journalist and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Ella Jessel. Ella is senior reporter at the Architects Journal, the AJ. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's four years on from the Grenfell fire, which caused 72 deaths. And the impact of this disaster, which is now the subject of an ongoing inquiry, has been widely retold throughout the national and built environment media. Our guest this week, Ella, has written a news feature for the AJ, reflecting on the past four years, delving into what has been learned in this time and its impact on architecture and architects working in the design of new housing. At the centre of the Grenfell investigation has been building safety and revelations about the worrying scale of catastrophic fire risk in buildings up and down the country. The headline conclusion is shocking. It is estimated about 274,000 flats have been fitted with dangerous cladding, affecting more than 650,000 people. And this cladding crisis has snowballed every year since Grenfell. Of the 469 high-rises found in the immediate aftermath of the fire to feature the aluminium composite material, or the ACM type, of cladding used in Grenfell, 156 were council blocks. Some of these, just like Grenfell, had been reclad in recent decades during refurbishments. So just to restate, that is 156 other social housing towers dressed in the same form of flammable materials found at Grenfell. In most of these cases, the dangerous cladding has now been removed. But there is also a large number of housing association blocks implicated in the cladding crisis, as well as 215 private sector housing tower schemes. And not all of these problem buildings have been resolved. Getting developers to remove cladding has been slow work due to painful negotiations over who should pay. The government has set aside a pot of £5.1 billion to fix the problem, but Parliament's Housing Communities and Local Government Committee has estimated the real cost could be more like £15 billion. 
Furthermore, the government's building safety fund only covers cladding and only for buildings over 18 metres, leaving millions of leaseholders in lower blocks footing the bill themselves. It has led some residents and campaigners to conclude that they are, quote, facing financial ruin and bankruptcy because of fire safety issues they did not cause. The repercussions of these findings are reverberating throughout the architectural industry, with the price of professional indemnity insurance skyrocketing and high levels of concern over fire safety, liability and product safety across the board. Hundreds of practices have had buildings caught up in the crisis, and Ella, in this AJ feature, has spoken to some of those directly affected. So Ella, throughout this whole investigation today, and obviously the inquiry is still ongoing, there's been a huge amount of finger pointing, uh, but very little admission to error or responsibility. You know, where do you think architects stand in this debate? And also, where do architects uh, think they stand in debate? And, you know, considering this is uh, potentially a systemic issue, um, are they to blame for these safety issues that, that, that did come up? Uh, but then also, you know, if this industry is going to change as a result of this, is it the architects that are going to lead the change? Or is the real responsibility for delivering that change higher up the food chain, potentially at le- legislative level? I think it goes without saying that so much went wrong at Grenfell and the issues are systemic for sure. Um, that's proved by the cladding crisis. I mean, you only have to look at the numbers that you're reading out earlier to see this is a problem in blocks across the country. Grenfell isn't just an, an isolated case. But, you know, a lot of things went wrong there. And... Um, you know, it, it's clearly the architects aren't to blame for Grenfell. Um, I think from we know from the inquiry's first phase that the 2016 refurb, in particular, the cladding, played a huge part in the fire spread. That's one thing that we know. Um, but the picture to emerge, and you know, the picture to emerge from that was one of of passing the buck, as you rightly point out. It was you know finger pointing and a lot of the companies involved not wanting or not able to sort of take any sort of blame for anything. Um, and I think. We have to just we do have to wait in in some level to see what what comes out of the inquiry in terms of where blame can be apportioned. Um, but I think that the industry is already making moves to try and sort of find out where you know how it should respond to this. I mean, one example is competency. Um, you know, the working group that was developed after um, the Hackett review in lots of different industries, but in architecture too, um, and. Uh, there's move to sort of try and address arch- architects' competency to improve improve some of the on some of the issues surrounding cladding design and so on. Although that I must say that has obviously been quite controversial with a lot of architects not agreeing that this is the right route forward, and also some people feeling like it's sort of putting culpability on architects um, when you know actually this was you know problem connected to deregulation and. Uh, design and build and all sorts of other larger scale issues. So the investigation, as we're hearing, it's revealed safety issues on a truly shocking scale, affecting the housing industry and also, crucially, leaseholders, who are really the industry's main customer for new build homes all across the country. Um, So, as we know, thousands of people are living in what could be near death traps, uh, and we've had similar smaller situations to Grenfell happening in the years since the disaster. But Ella, how has the housing industry responded to this tragedy, if at all? You know, with so many leaseholders who are often first-time buyers enraged, doesn't this rather undermine the future customer base for new homes? And could this scandal therefore impact house prices or lead to an even greater undermining of trust in the development industry, which obviously, if we're to be honest, was hardly very popular before anyway? Well, the estimates are really high. It could be up to, you know, a million, I think, homes that could be unmortgageable due to this. 
So I think that 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 could arguably lead to some impact on house prices. Um, And the the problem doesn't look like it's going away because these it's a bit technical, but these ESW1 forms that have been produced, you know, now every every resident in blocks of certain heights needs one. And that's really holding up the housing market. So it definitely has is having an impact. Can anything bring down house prices? It doesn't. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> um, if you look at the government will continue to prop up the housing market. We know this, you know, look at stamp duty holiday being extended. It's got, you know, right to buy products like this that artificially inflate the housing market. It, it, I don't know if, if even this, like you'd, you'd think it would, but I don't even know even this will bring down prices. But as for trust, I think you only have to look at the um, protests which happened all across the UK just a few weeks ago where leaseholders were targeting sales offices which I think was quite a good protest tactic making a huge fuss with signs uh, you know saying that their their homes were death traps I mean that is it might not put off the most uh, desperate of house buyers but it, it must it might it must have some effect and it's definitely definitely damaged trust made trust you know even sort of more damaged in the development industry I think so the government as we heard is set aside a 5.1 billion pound pot Uh, to deal with this uh, fix the cladding problem but that committee in parliament has said the real bill could be a bit more like 15 billion pounds you know on top of this combustible insulation is still permitted on buildings under 18 meters and it's widely used a recent industry study showed that over 70 new school buildings have been built with combustible insulation since the grenfell tower Uh, Why are we in a situation where four years on, there seems to be no clear way forward on this stuff, no sense of urgency and and real no reassurance this won't happen again? Yeah, I think for sure there's not enough money being made available by the government. That's for sure. Um, And you're right to point out that, you know, the housing committee says it's more like 15 billion. Another estimate by a cladding specialist put it at 50 billion to fix this, you know, the whole problem, which is huge. Um, so, you know, it's a little wonder the government's not making that kind of money available, but it should do really because it's, you know, it's it's a problem that is otherwise not going to get fixed. And I think there is real urgency. I mean, the, the RBA said it was shocked that that, pe- that 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 insulation was still being used widely um, on buildings of that height. Um, but it's not banned. We have to, you know, we have to point out that it's not banned and it is it is still allowed and it is still widely used and it can be safe in certain makeups, I think. So it just shows that there's a huge debate still to happen about what should be banned and what shouldn't be banned. And there's just general conclusion. It's just a bit of a nightmare. At the centre of the Grenfell disaster was the plight of social housing and social housing tenants who've been marginalised for decades by successive government policies long before this scandalous episode which exposed the sort of twin evils of cost-cutting and disregard for human life. And yet sometimes amid the cladding scandal and all the political attention being given to leaseholders of private flats, and these are the sort of often the sort of aspirational first time buyers who always feature in politicians rousing speeches about the housing crisis. You know, it feels that social housing and social housing tenants are once again being pushed into the sidelines. You know, for example, the government's social housing white paper, which promised to empower tenants against negligent landlords failing to make proper repairs, was absent from the Queen's speech opening parliament last month and therefore appears to now be delayed um and what caught my attention this week was a really interesting aj opinion piece written by alpa dapani who's placemaking lead at the london borough of waltham forest and she said 
Quote, the key lesson of the Grenfell fire is not about tighter technical requirements or more informed value engineering. It's about reframing the way we talk about and deliver housing to be first and foremost about people, people living in homes and what makes uh, and homes that make up those communities. It's a point very well made, but how do we get there? I guess we start by listening to the communities, but I think that's become a bit of a cliche, hasn't it? Everyone says we listen to communities. Architects are always saying they listen to communities. Um, now the government's always saying it's listening to communities, but it's not. And you're right to raise the social housing white paper. Where is that? Grenfell United have been calling for that white paper um, and it hasn't been produced. And it looks to me like something the government has put right to the back of its priority list, as is always the case when it comes to, as you rightly point out, social housing rather than market housing. While we rely on private developers to build social housing, these problems won't go away because at the end of the day, they are trying to please their shareholders, not the people who live in these developments. Um, And I think this is the divorcing of the work that um, Alpa's talking about in her AJ piece. I mean, you could could start by listening to residents on existing estates that are saying they don't want demolished, like Cressingham and like Central Hill. The rot that Alpa describes in her piece um, it is is really there, and I think it's something that is a, a conversation is long overdue on. I don't think the government's listening, though, unfortunately. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes, and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month and Adobe will donate to OpenCity for everyone who signs up. Our next story is all about a protest to save Brick Lane, which took place last weekend in response to redevelopment plans for the old Truman Brewery. Hafsa Adan, assistant curator at Open City, attended. A difference by the council and creeping displacement by the city. People of all ages showed out to show their support for the community of Brick Lane. People came with their children. There were elderly people and everyone was dressed up in beautiful bright colours to show the vibrancy of the community that live and work in this area. It was a really hot day, but people stayed and managed to persevere for most of the day to kind of show their solidarity and commitment to this cause. Taking place in last weekend's glorious sunny weather, the protests saw hundreds of people marching down Brick Lane holding banners reading Save the East End and Support Small Businesses. It was an image reminiscent of the late 1970s when anti-racist protesters marched from Brick Lane to Downing Street in anger over the murder of Bangladeshi textile worker Altab Ali by fascists. A park nearby now bears his name. But rather than fighting fascists, this protest was the latest chapter in an ongoing planning battle. A story which has been covered by local media, the London Evening Standard and Tribune, as local communities fight against further gentrification of the area. The marching campaigners were battling plans to redevelop the old Truman Brewery site into a shopping mall and offices. The plans, drawn up by Buckley Grey Yeoman Architects, have already been met with more than 7,000 objections. The site of what was formerly the world's largest brewery is now home to dozens of arts businesses, independent shops, galleries, market stalls and restaurants, reflecting the demographics of local residents. 
It is an unmissable landmark of London's East End and a powerful symbol of the district's recent revival as an economic powerhouse fueled by small-scale creative industries after decades of post-war, post-industrial decline. The owners of the building, who up until now have pursued a very slow, evolutionary approach to regeneration, want to now add a five-storey extension to part of the building, housing a gym, storage space, rooftop area and shopping mall. The BBC presenter and former AJ journalist Dan Cruikshank, you know, someone clearly who knows a bit about architecture, uh, but also the area because he set up the Spitalfields Trust in 1977, he described the old Truman Brewery as being, quote, incredibly important, both emotionally and historically, claiming the proposed development will ruin Brick Lane's special character and erase its history. He went on to say the development is, quote, a money-making operation that will come at the expense of the local community. He said, we live in a society where money drives everything, and what we are seeing now is real estate being prioritised over people's livelihoods. So Ella, what's this all about? Brick Lane has been home to immigrant communities for just about as long as it's existed. From the Huguenots fleeing religious persecution in France, to Irish communities fleeing the famine, and Jews fleeing pogroms in Europe. More recently, it's home to a large Bangladeshi community. Why are situations like these, where working class and immigrant communities, as well as newer arrivals such as independent artists and creatives on low incomes, are being forced out and priced out of an area? Why are these things becoming so popular and so fraught in discussions around architecture? Is this the sort of economic development, the march of progress and renewal in East End, or is this actually, quote, social cleansing? These debates have been around in architecture and in Shoreditch for a long time. Um, and I think, but I, you know, I do think that there are a lot of areas in London that are sort of feeling the bite of gentrification, especially harshly at the moment. And these areas that are making a stand about this are often those with large immigrant communities. There was a similar campaign over the Elephant and Castle shopping centre. Um, and Seven Sisters in Tottenham and the, the Latin American communities in both those in both those areas. And, and often the building itself isn't much to write home about necessarily. In this case, I think it's actually vacant land that, um, you know, that Truman really want to build on. But I suppose it's about capturing something else, isn't it, that these debates often often spring from. So I think, um, you know, in The Elephant, it was about what the building had had become to the community that lived there and worked there and ate there and these are social centres which are constructed over time and that you just won't get that in a new build development which um, you know even if it offers a certain percentage of units at a reduced rent that you know that won't that won't cut it. So beyond Bangletown that's a report by the Runnymede Trust a charity which actually opposes the redevelopment that report revealed that Bengali businesses and restaurants in Brick Lane were struggling somewhat even before the pandemic and that closures of locally owned restaurants had become frequent. Uh, so speaking to Tribune, for example, one local resident commented that it was becoming harder and harder to find places selling halal meat, for example, in the area. Now, obviously, that was once uh, a very common and easy to find thing there. Um, certainly when you visit Brick Lane, especially on a weekend, it seems more full of tourists and young people hanging out uh, than it does the migrant communities that live there and um, certainly influence the streetscape of local businesses and places, place names uh, not so very long ago. Um you know, what, when you think about this, what needs to happen for this system of building owners, of developers, of architects, of planners, you know, these people who shape so much change in our own, 
in urban environments and hold a lot of power over the fate of places like Brick Lanes. What needs to change for that system to recognise this intangible cultural heritage beyond the mere bricks and mortar? After all, this is something that is quite commonly recognised elsewhere around the world, just not very well here. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because it's partly Brick Lanes changing over the years that has made it what it is, as you point, quite rightly pointed out, you know, the different communities that have have moved in there over time. So arguably, you know, pinning it down to one type of, um, you know, type of shop or so on could 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 actually um, sort of stop that. Um, but I think how planners can protect culture as a broader question is really interesting. I think there's obviously, you know, for pubs, you've got like assets of community value. So residents and locals can apply for listings so they can get in there with a bid before developers buy it up. And that's something that was used in another big gentrification story, the... Um, LGBTQ venue, uh, the Joiner's Arms, also in Shoreditch. Um, and I think they, I'm pretty sure they applied for an ACV listing there. Um, so that's maybe an example of how planners can sort of work to protect culture. Um, I don't know, maybe to look to Berlin. I think they think they, um, they have different tax breaks for nightclubs in Berlin because they rec- recognise that they're, uh, you know, just as culturally valuable as uh, art galleries, for example. Clearly, the fate of the wider Brick Lane conservation area is an issue of great concern to local residents, including the architects David Knight and Christina Montero of DKCM, who are editing Open City's upcoming cultural and social history of the London pub. They watched in horror as a large pop-up augmented reality go-kart track was erected on Fleet Street Hill, opposite their home, on the site of a former nomadic community gardens. And what's more, it was built without seeking planning permission first, something local authority Tower Hamlets has confirmed it is now looking into and expects a live application soon. Montero said the ability to seek retrospective planning sets, quote, an extraordinarily dangerous precedent for our fragile local community and economy, particularly with regards to the uncertainty over the future use of the Truman Brewery nearby. She said it tells these organisations that they can build whatever they want and worry about the consequences later. Why is it time and time again, and especially in lower income areas of London, this whole planning system and the way that developers are able to get what they want out of it is seen to fail local communities? So clearly, if, uh, you know, if a go-kart track can just pop up without anyone knowing about it, with no prior consultation of residents that's not going to give the local communities of Brick Lane and surrounding areas much um, you know much hope that they're going to get a fair hearing on these planning decisions. Brick Lane and the wider Shoreditch area is really no stranger to large-scale capitally intensive development. Um, Despite years of controversy, uh, big mixed-use developments like, for example, the AHMM-led Norton Folgate for British land uh, and Bishopsgate Goods Yard, designed by Eric Parry, Faulkner Browns, Chris Dyson Architects and Buckley Gray Yeoman for Hammerson and Ballymore, they've won approval. Um, Why are the owners of the old Truman Brewery, who for decades were at the forefront of the area's evolutionary regeneration, focusing on small-scale independent creative businesses, why are they now facing so much opposition for merely upgrading their site, they might say, uh, when other bigger commercial players are doing similar, potentially more disruptive redevelopments nearby? Yeah, I think I kind of agree with that, actually, because there are a lot of larger schemes in progress and sort of Shoreditch is now just 
in a way become the city fringe and that's obviously an issue for those who want to protect the you know the amazing historic buildings of Spitalfields and so on but there's also a sense that I think Truman Brewery has been a long time resident of Brick Lane it was at the heart of the Shoreditch bar scene in the 2000s it has 93 feet east um, it's got Cafe 1001 which is still there it's been there for you know years um, and I suppose it's just sort of completing its cycle from sort of disused brewery to trendy bar, coffee shop, and then of inevitably commercial space. I read an interesting piece um, on this subject by Alice Kemp Habib in the G- in GQ, um, and she spoke to the owner of Masala, one of the restaurants, and um, he also runs the Brick Lane Business Association. He says they're in support of the Truman Brewery scheme, um, which I think is quite interesting. So it's you know it's. I think there, the wider campaign there is about is a, is about saving Brick Lane, and everybody wants Brick Lane to to be there. But perhaps this scheme isn't necessarily um, the right target. Our third story was covered in the AJ, and it looks at the architects named in this year's Queen's Birthday Honours. Steve Tompkins of RIBA Sterling Prize winning Howard Tompkins, social housing leading light Peter Barber, and the author, academic and architect Sumita Singer have all been recognised. Barber, founder of Peter Barber Architects, and Singer, director of London-based practice Ecologic Architects, were handed OBEs for services to architecture, while Tompkins was made an MBE for services to both architecture and to the arts. On receiving her MBE, Singer, who ran for RIBA president last year, took a swipe at the Institute for the lack of diversity in its awards programme. Regular listeners will remember London covered the all-male cohort of the 2021 Rebirth Fellows last week with Sean Adams. Singer said, I hope this inspires the RIBA to evaluate its own award system to make it more diverse, equitable and inclusive. The RIBA, the institute that itself puts forward architects for the honours system. Peter Murray, curator-in-chief at New London Architecture, was also recognised with an OBE for his contribution to leadership in the arts, architecture, city planning, design publication and charity, as was the 90-year-old author, critic and historian Kenneth Frampton, who was made a CBE for services to architecture. Now, of course, these honours have come at a time of enormous national debate over the role of the British Empire, including Britain's historic involvement in colonialism and the slave trade, uh, the legacy of which still shapes our lives today. OBEs and MBEs are indelibly linked to the language and hierarchy of the empire. You know, they stand for Order of the British Empire, member of the British Empire, respectively. Are you surprised to see architects accepting honours so overtly connected to the British Empire. And what do you think it says about the industry itself? We know that the architecture industry loves an award. So I suppose this is just the ultimate award. Um, I don't know if I'm surprised. I think it's a very personal decision. It depends on your own political views. It depends if you're a monarchist or you're not. You know, it, And I, I suppose it, it's hard to say who, who, who might turn them down and who might not. Um, I think there was a list um, recipients of the award who'd returned who'd returned them or turned them down um, that was made public by the Sunday Times a few years back and there was actually an architect on the list do you know who it was uh go on go, who could I get guess it's um, <laughs> somebody who's really outspoken I should know I'm an architectural journalist this someone I email all the time yeah, well it's Cedric Price I put you out of your misery Merlin it's um he was the designer of the aviary in Regent's Park Zoo so he designed it with Lord Soden obviously so maybe that's where the the honour came from but he turned it down apparently but we don't know why so 
And he's, he's died now, unfortunately, so we can't find out. Our next story relates to the tragic passing of Dennis Gilbert, the brilliant architectural photographer and a founder of View Pictures, a British picture library representing the archives of more than 50 photographers with a special interest in architecture and design. Dennis travelled the world, capturing architecture through his striking images. His work adorned architectural publications the world over and was appreciated for its mastery of light and form, which injected life and character into static shapes. In 2005, the RIBA awarded him an honorary fellowship for his contribution to architecture, and his work is often commended for a deep understanding of both the technical and aesthetic qualities of a building in its environment. Dennis was a friend of many of the people at Open City, as well as a friend of the charity itself, getting in touch with us as soon as the pandemic hit last year to see how he could help. So Ella, Dennis's work, it was often characterised by this sort of wide format, crystal clear compositions shot from tripods, often in collaboration with his partner, Susan Bockelman. Uh, Their work was different in manner and process to some of the upcoming generation of architectural photographers, many of whom are more likely to be found flying a drone than using a tripod. Um, What is the role of photography in architectural journalism and why is it so important? Well, it's crucial, isn't it? Because it's how we often how we receive the building is through the photograph of that building, especially in magazines that we write and, you know, online. Um, I think it's it's interesting sort of the point about the incoming generation, because I I read a piece that he wrote in the AR last year um, and he includes a quote from one of his favourite photographers, David Goldblatt. um, And he describes how he dismisses theories on framing and composition by saying, isn't it just what works? Um, And he says that photography of buildings must be an articulate and surprising record of the experience of the architecture. And his tips are to include context and adjacent bits in your presentations and people, which I think is a really nice tip from him. I think what's quite interesting is that in the past, and this is definitely the past long before I became an architectural journalist, photographers like Dennis would have been commissioned by magazines uh, and they would have had substantial photography budgets, giving them editorial independence to choose and frame the images that they would publish these days it's more common for architects to commission photographers themselves and then gift those images the ones they like to the magazines and the blogs and to gift it to them for free for publication Um, what do you make of this new system in which architects have so much more control over how their projects are seen in the media um i don't like it (laughs) i would much prefer uh Uh, publications to have huge budgets to commission brilliant photographers to go out and take photographs of buildings and receive a brief and to write to work alongside the journalist to produce you know visual because photographs can be just as as you know um informative and and illuminating as text and you want you want to sort of treat that like journalism which means that it should definitely not come from the person that you're writing about because you lose um you know you lose that um objectivity. Our final story relates to the launch of the new TV current affairs channel GB News. It is something that has been extensively reported on by the giants of national media and has so far received very mixed reviews, being described by the Herald Scotland as dross, uh, but by the spectator as worthy of praise and enlivening public discourse. That's not to mention Twitter, where pundits said it looked like a deleted scene from Black Mirror, suggesting it was either shot inside a giant PS4 or filmed on a Nokia 3310. 
The new, quote, Proud to be British news channel hosted its inaugural broadcast on Sunday evening with ex-BBC presenter and chair of The Spectator, Andrew Neil, saying the channel will, quote, lend an ear to some of Britain's marginalised and overlooked voices. Broadcast, the TV industry trade publication, stated that on its launch, GB News received a higher viewership despite many technical errors, including poor sound quality, than both the BBC and Sky News. So what does this all mean for architects, for built environment aficionados and fans of London's architectural heritage? Well, attempting to situate itself within the media landscape in the run-up to its launch, GB News published an article written by one of its inaugural presenters, Anaya Falarin Iman, commenting on home ownership and generation rent. It was titled, Can Building a Million Homes Resolve the UK's Cultural Differences? The article argued that the so-called culture wars, these are national debates over signals and symbols embodying political causes, such as the England team kneeing in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, or students at Oxford University voting to remove a portrait of the Queen. Um, this was arguing that those sort of culture wars are due to a generational property wealth gap between right-wing home-owning older people and the left-leaning younger renters. Uh, describing the home ownership drive under Margaret Thatcher as a success in that it turned Britain into a property-loving nation and expanded home ownership for a generation, GB News claimed that a resulting shortage of affordable housing to buy is what has led to a generation of people suffering from a, quote, diminished economic package. So Ella, what's this all about? And particularly thinking about the built environment, um, you know, this is a channel which declares itself to be anti-woke. Um, I think some people are expecting it to be a kind of new home for the alt-right in the UK. Uh, we haven't seen some of the more obvious tropes like trashing modernist architecture and celebrating European traditional styles. Um, there is, however, clearly a kind of consistent backing of fairly outdated Thatcherite policies, particularly with regards to housing. And what do you make of this attempt to reclaim the narrative around the housing crisis and then to link it to, to cultural divides just at a time when more and more people are actually calling for sustainable public housing, for great rented housing with long term tenancies instead of the travails of property ownership? Yeah, I think on ha on housing, this particular article is one of those articles where it says it poses a big question that, you know, you know, those articles like, oh, um, uh, I'm sure I'm guilty of writing a few, but it's will building four micro homes on a garage fix the housing crisis, those kind of articles. And this is a similar one. It's a can building a million homes resolve the UK's cultural differences. Uh, we know the answer is no, nothing can. <laughs> and we have to then sort of, you know, read through pages and pages of um yeah, I don't know. It, it it didn't really strike me as saying anything new. It was kind of an overview of um, housing policies we all know about. Um, and yeah, I didn't think it was the most um, illuminating art article. Um, I, maybe some more will come, though. I mean, you say it hasn't yet become a home for the alt-right on housing. We haven't yet heard about, um, you know, architect bashing and that kind of thing. But maybe maybe that was something that will that will that will still come because it's in its infancy, isn't it? It's been a great pleasure having you on the London uh, this week, Ella Jessel. Uh, where can listeners uh, keep up to speed on your fantastic writing? Um, the Architects Journal news website. And any uh, social media handles they should know about? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Ella Jessel. 
Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I hope you can join us again soon. And uh, it's been uh, great to discuss the big issues in London architecture this week. Thank you, Lundown. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.